Listener, a merry and cheerful Christmas greeting to you and to your family. On this, our second in a series we're calling Lyceum Conversation Starters, our attention turns from the waiting of Advent to what Advent was awaiting, to the high feast of today and of the next 12 days, the feast of Christmas. As I speak today, the Academy community at large is hard at work preparing its annual end-of-semester Christmas feast, where students will gather clothed in their Christmas finery for an unusually formal hour. Though at times interrupted by unplanned bouts of expectably juvenile tomfoolery, as well as by the always-present English mummers' play and the singing of carols, the strangely formal feast may linger long in the quiet corners of each student's mind, calling them with all the joy of memory to something higher and more noble than they have yet known. Today's starter, the three essentials of Christmas. The quiet call of warm memories, their transformative nature, such, it would seem, is the special power of this time of year, a season commemorating the thin, the ultimately puncturable barrier between heaven and earth, between the rich generosity of God's self-giving and the impoverished order of our own hearths and hearts. Perhaps no writer has better captured the inherently transformative and revelatory merriment of the season than Charles Dickens whose most famous Christmas story, A Christmas Carol, continues to be engagingly and vitally read, staged, and adapted. The story's enduring power and its deeper significance were the recent topic of a visiting Lyceum speaker, Dr. Ben Myers, who spoke to students at both South and North Campus about how the key to understanding Scrooge is not his greed per se, but his solitude his rejection of human community and its good. In line with this presentation, I here add the commendation of a certain Mr. G.K. Chesterton, who, in a short essay introducing the Christmas stories of Dickens, argues that, however unexpectedly in light of Dickens' modern proclivities, a Christmas carol's narrative power arises from the story's deep participation in what Chesterton calls the three ancient and essential qualities of Christmas. Quote, qualities which explain Christmas's hold upon the human sense of happiness. Chesterton continues, there are three notes of Christmas, so to speak, which are also notes of happiness. What are they? In honor of the day, and with some concluding questions, I offer them to you, dear listener, in full, as Chesterton wrote them. The first quality is what may be called the dramatic quality. The happiness is not a state. It is a crisis. All the old customs surrounding the celebration of the birth of Christ are made by human instinct so as to insist and reinsist upon this crucial quality. Everything is so arranged that the whole household may feel, if possible, as a household does when a child is actually being born in it. The thing is a vigil, and a vigil with a definite limit. People sit up at night until they hear the bells ring. 
or they try to sleep at night in order to see their presence the next morning. Everywhere there is a limitation, a restraint. At one moment the door is shut, at the moment after it is opened. The hour has come or it has not come. The parcels are undone or they are not undone. There is no evolution of Christmas presents. This sharp and theatrical quality and pleasure, which human instinct and the mother wit of the world has wisely put into the popular celebrations of Christmas, is also a quality which is essential in such romantic literature as Dickens wrote. In romantic literature, the hero and heroine must indeed be happy, but they must also be unexpectedly happy. This is the first connecting link between literature and the old religious feast. This is the first connecting link between Dickens and Christmas. The second element to be found in all such festivity and all such romance is the element which is represented as well as it could be represented by the mere fact that Christmas occurs in the winter. It is the element not merely of contrast, but actually of antagonism. It preserves everything that was best in the merely primitive or pagan view of such ceremonies or such banquets. If we are carousing, at least we are warriors carousing. We hang above us, as it were, the shields and battle axes with which we must do battle with the giants of the snow and hail. All comfort must be based on discomfort. Man chooses when he wishes to be most joyful the very moment when the whole material universe is most sad. It is this contradiction and mystical defiance which gives a quality of manliness and reality to the old winter feasts, which is not characteristic of the sunny felicities of the earthly paradise. And this curious element has been carried out even in all the trivial jokes and tasks that have always surrounded such occasions as these. The object of the jovial customs was not to make everything artificially easy. On the contrary, it was rather to make everything artificially difficult. Idealism is not only expressed by shooting an arrow at the stars. The fundamental principle of idealism is also expressed by putting a leg of mutton at the top of a greasy pole. There is in all such observances a quality which can be called only the quality of divine obstruction. For instance, in the game of Snapdragon, that admirable occupation, the conception is that raisins taste much nicer if they are brands saved from the burning. Above all Christmas things, there is something a little nobler, if only nobler in form and theory, than mere comfort. Even holly is prickly. It is not hard to see the connection of this kind of historic instinct with a romantic writer like Dickens, the healthy novelist must always play snapdragon with his principal characters. He must always be snatching the hero and heroine like raisins out of the fire. The third great Christmas element is the element of the grotesque. The grotesque is the natural expression of joy, and all the utopias and new Edens of the poets fail to give a real impression of enjoyment, very largely because they leave out the grotesque. A man in most modern utopias cannot really be happy. He is too dignified. A man in Morris's earthly paradise cannot really be enjoying himself. He is too decorative. When real human beings have real delights, they tend to express them entirely in grotesques. I might almost say 
entirely in goblins. On Christmas Eve, one may talk about ghosts so long as they are turnip ghosts, but one would not be allowed, I hope, in any decent family, to talk on Christmas Eve about astral bodies. The boar's head of old Yule time was as grotesque as the donkey's head of bottom the weaver. But there's only one set of goblins quite wild enough to express the wild goodwill of Christmas. These goblins are the characters of Dickens. If we study the very real atmosphere of rejoicing and of riotous charity in the Christmas Carol, we shall find that all the three marks I have mentioned are unmistakably visible. The Christmas Carol is a happy story first, because it describes an abrupt and dramatic change. It is not only the story of a conversion, but of a sudden conversion, as sudden as the conversion of a man at a Salvation Army meeting. Popular religion is quite right in insisting on the fact of a crisis in most things. It's true that the man at the Salvation Army meeting would probably be converted from the punch bowl, whereas Scrooge was converted to it. That only means that Scrooge and Dickens represented a higher and more historic Christianity. Again, the Christmas Carol owes much of its hilarity to our second source, the fact of its being a tale of winter and of a very wintry winter. There is much about comfort in the story, yet the comfort is never enervating. It is saved from that by a tingle of something bitter and bracing in the weather. Lastly, the story exemplifies throughout the power of the third principle, the kinship between gaiety and the grotesque. Everybody is happy because nobody is dignified. We have a feeling somehow that Scrooge looked even uglier when he was kind than he had looked when he was cruel. The turkey that Scrooge bought was so fat, says Dickens, that it could never have stood upright. That top-heavy and monstrous bird is a good symbol of the top-heavy happiness of the stories. First, Chesterton writes that Christmas, like happiness, is dramatic sudden of a moment. What might each of us do to honor and increase the drama of our Christmas celebrations? Second, Chesterton writes that Christmas is antagonistic, at war with the cold of the larger world. All its festivity for Chesterton arises from its meeting this challenge. How might we then increase this element of divine obstruction in our celebrations? How might we insert a bit of challenge and daring? Finally, and most surprisingly, Chesterton argues that Christmas merriment must be grotesque, or in other words, undignified. How might we then submit ourselves more fully to the indignities of a truly joyful Christmas feast? Where might we shuffle off the mortal feelings of self-consciousness and absurdity and embrace the silliness that makes for a selfless good time? As you ponder these questions together in good conversation, may you yourselves know the joy of an earth filled in every place with the light of a generous heaven. Merry Christmas.